We are in, a, in the middle of a new series that we started back on May 20th. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's called Bodybuilding, uh, building up our spiritual bodies, building up the body of Christ and building up ourselves individually as members of the body of Christ. Uh, the first week we talked about the power of unity, how when the church is together, when the church is synergized and, and everybody's working together toward a common goal, the church is unstoppable. Last week we talked about the foolishness of God. It says, the, Paul says, the message of the cross, the gospel message, he says, to the people that are out there perishing who don't believe it, they don't understand it, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, to those who believe, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it talks about Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is both the power and the wisdom from God. So I hope that you guys spent last week boasting uh, because we came up to the end of chapter one and it says, you know what, if anybody's going to boast, don't boast about your wisdom. Don't boast about your strength. Don't boast about your finances. Don't boast about your power. If you're going to boast about anything, let him or her boast in the Lord. So we said, you know, if we're going to toot our horn out there in the world about anything, let's toot our horn about Jesus and about what a great Savior we have. Amen? That was last week, and I hope you were out there boasting for Jesus. Um, one of the questions I have this week, and I need a little prop for this, <laughs> and I got to hide it. By the way, I just came across somebody. Oh, yeah. Mike Joseph, we, played the, we were able to play golf together with Mike and Phil Caputo on Friday, got invited out to play at Oakmont. Beautiful course out there. And uh, I come to find out Phil Caputo uh, used to jump out of airplanes um, uh, professionally, or at least as a competitor in these, you know, these teams that form formations in the air after they jump out of planes. I hope the biggest prize wasn't for the person who could wait to the last minute to pull their chute. You know, that, that'd be a tough bet to, to lose. And so there's Phil Caputo. And then I find out about Mike Joseph, who I just say, hey, it's everyday Mike. You know, he's a good guy. Coming out to find out he used to tour around shooting pool uh, in all kinds of tournaments for a living, which reminds me of today and what I have today in my pocket, which I will show you in a minute. The question that I begin the message today is, how do you know whether or not you are hearing from God? How do you know the direction that you're going, the, the life that you're pursuing, the goals that you are, are going after? How do you know that that's really being led by God's Spirit? How do you know it's not being led by something else or maybe your own ambition or maybe there's something in the world that's just drawing you away from God? How do you know if your decisions are God honoring and following his will? I don't know. How, do, how does anybody make a decision today? You know, which way should I go? Uh, who should I marry? What college should I go to? Uh, what kind of job should I try to get? Uh, where am I going to live? You know, people have all kinds of way of finding out in this world. You know, there's people that go to fortune tellers. There's people that go to tarot card readers. There's people that read their horoscope as if that's a real deal. And, and they're going to find true wisdom in that. Um, when I was growing up, and this wasn't, by the way, this wasn't the size. When I used to have a Magic 8-Ball, this was not the size of the Magic 8-Ball. I mean, things are getting more compact and cheap, and I should have known it when it was only five bucks on Amazon that, that it wasn't going to be a, a real full-size Magic 8-Ball. But if, if you guys remember this from your youth, 
This is called a magic eight ball. And a magic eight ball was really cool because you could ask the magic eight ball any question. Uh, does, uh, does Darcy like me? And you'd shake the magic eight ball and you'd turn it over and you'd get an answer, right? And you'd say, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> like, do you, you think she likes you or something like that? And um, should, I, uh, should I ask her out? Will she say yes? Do, 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 do. Don't rely on it. And you're like, no, I want a different answer because you're, you're seeking some, some fun answers in life. This magic eight ball is so funny because it's different. Instead of shaking it and having this round, it, there's 23 different sides to the magic eight ball in the original. And it always came in this blue liquid and you'd shake it and turn it over and it wait for it to come up to the surface. And you're like, what's the answer going to be, right? This one's different. This one is you ask a question like, Will LeBron James be the MVP of this year's NBA Finals? And you push the button, and it says, it says, uh, it says signs point to yes. Signs point to yes. So then, here, Lisa, you catch this, please. You got, you got the eight ball for me. Um, I, then I come to find out there's 23 sides to the Magic 8 ball. 12 of them are positive. Six are sort of uh, nebulous, like... Uh, uh, the, 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 the answer's fuzzy, try again later, or something like that. And six are negative. But there's not a definitely not one. There's just sort of like uh, looks doubtful or something like that. So it always leaves you questioning. Uh, the magic eight ball, I'll just tell you as a pastor, is a terrible way to govern your life. You're, you're, if you want to be led... If you want to be led by God, you're going to have to go a different way than saying, Magic 8-Ball, you know, help me out here. Uh, I've heard of Christians do the, uh, the hunt and peck version of the Bible, you know, where you hear the, the Christians try to find some direction from God. God, what should I do in this situation? I'm in a crisis. Please help me. And they think somehow you can just open up the Bible and find the answer. And I'm going to give you a cliche joke, so here's your foreshadowing. The cliche, the cliche joke is you open up the Bible and you say, God, what do you want me to do? Should, is this the girl for me or not? Or do you want me to take this job? Or which way should I go? And uh, tell me what to do, Lord. And you open up the Bible and you put your finger down and you look down at the verse thinking you're going to get direction from God right here, right now. And it says, and Judas went out and hung himself. And you're like, oh, no, this can't be right. Lord, please, I, I need another chance. Don't. Don't let that be the answer. That's not where I want to go. Lord, give me an answer. And you keep flipping the Bible and you go, mm. and you go, Lord, lead me and guide me. And it says, go and do likewise. And you're like, no, no. And Lord, that's never going to work. God, please, one more chance, one more chance. And you flip through the Bible and you put your finger down and it says, and what thou doest, do quickly. No. So I do not recommend the hunt and peck version of, of, of looking in a Bible verse to try to find an answer. God has better ways of leading us in that. God has better ways of leading us in this decision. So who or what do you turn to when you want wisdom from God? Some people turn to their spouse. Some people turn to a friend. Some people turn to somebody who's a Christian whom they respect. Some people turn to a pastor. Um, I would turn to the Word of God. The Word of God is a great place to become wise. Look what it says there in Psalm 119. A great, uh, long, it's the longest psalm in the entire book of Psalms, which is like the Hebrew songbook. When you get down to verses 98 and 99, you're still only like halfway through the psalm. So you have to have time. If you say, I'm going to read Psalm 119 today, give yourself some time. 
You know, your coffee cup's going to get cold by the time you get done with it. But it says this. It says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies. I remember being a teenager and hearing a, a verse like that, and I was like, this is great. And then the next one's even better for a student. I have more insights than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statues. So one of the ways to get wisdom from God is you've got to look in God's word. You've got to ask God for his direction. You've got to understand that the books of the Bible, it's not just a, a magic eight ball for you to point your finger and say, God, show me the way and look at a verse and, and think that that's going to be direct um, direction from God. It's not going to happen that way. We need a better way to find out which way we are to go, what way we are to live. I was asking a, a someone this week in church, and I said, how do you get direction from God? How do you know that the decisions you're making or the pathway that you're choosing, how do you know that that's God's will for you? And one of the ways that she said this, and I really liked it, she said, is this, she asked, said, I'll just ask a couple of questions. Is this something Jesus would do? You know, back to the old WWJD bracelet, which was pretty good a way to live your life. Uh, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Is this something Jesus would say? Is this something that Jesus would likely do? Is this something that would honor God? Is this something that would advance the gospel? Is this something that Jesus values in this world, right? So that's a good way to get wisdom from God. I think the best way that we get wisdom is, is when we learn how to think and act and feel and behave like Jesus, having the mind of Christ. And by the way, the verse that we're going to uh, be looking at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it actually finishes the whole chapter and it says, and here's the good news, I'll give you the spoiler alert at the end. It says, because of the revelation of the gospel, because God has given us his word, because God sent us his apostles out into the world to proclaim the good news of Christ and what it means, not just the fact that Jesus died in Palestine years and years ago, but, and he didn't stay dead, he came out of the grave on the third day, but what does that mean? And Paul says at the end, God has given this revelation to us, this message, it used to be hidden in the past, but now it's been revealed. The strategic plan of God is now out on display in the New Testament. And because of that, that we can read that and understand it, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We can have the mind of Christ. So it's a tremendous hope for us. Now, I want to go back to Paul, and, and I want to remind you, when Paul first came to the Corinthian church, remember this cosmopolitan, largest city in southern Greece, big seaport, right? This is where the naval, all the, all the sailors and the Navy people would come in, and they would uh, land on one side of the, of the four-mile-wide isthmus in southern Greece. They would land on one side. The cargo would get unloaded from the ships. They would have some time off. And they would want to go and have a good time. They would want to go and have a bad time. Um, and so to these Corinthians, you know, Paul is saying, I, I want to remind you, when I first came to you, um, when I said the gospel is full of wisdom, but it's not full of human wisdom. It, it, when I gave you the gospel and it was good for the Greek, it, it was the truth about Jesus and him crucified, but the Jews thought it was nonsense. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's nonsense to the Greeks. How could a man be crucified and still be under the blessing of God? How could uh, dying and living again, how could that uh, possibly show us any wisdom and direction from God? And so 
Uh, Paul was explaining that, that Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God, that the message of the cross is subversive. It assaults all human pride. It assaults all self-sufficiency. It brings us all to this level where we say, God, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. I need a savior to save me. And of course, we go back to Jesus's birth and the angel said, and you will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The whole reason that Jesus came in the first place. And Paul said, so when I came to you, I didn't come you know, with this grand uh, style. I didn't come in the, in the style of these great rhetoricians of the Greek word. Greek world. It says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything. Paul says, I'm not going to rely on human wisdom. I'm not going to rely on philosophy. I'm not going to try and wow you with my lofty speech. Paul says, I'm just going to focus on one thing. And he says, I, that I would forget everything except Jesus Christ the one who was crucified. We never preach the good news message of Christ if we do not include the cross. The cross is, is, the, is the centrality of the Christian message, that, that there was a God who loved us so much that he was willing to leave heaven and sacrifice himself in order to reconcile us to God. It says so much about God in the cross. And Paul says, I'm going to focus on Jesus and him crucified. That's the only message that I really have uh, to give you. Jesus has to be front and center. Paul says, I've got to elevate Jesus and I've got to de-elevate Paul. He must increase. I must decrease. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter or Cephas. It's not about anything else if it's not about Jesus. And then Paul's attitude. He continues and he says, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. My message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to convict the world of the righteousness of Christ and he's going to convict the world of the judgment to come if we don't repent and turn around and start following God in the way of Jesus. So we know that that's where the power of God is. It's not in lofty human wisdom or speech. It's not in, you know, who can get up and wow somebody by the way that they speak. So Paul says, you know, by this Greek world standards, my preaching is pretty ordinary. It's pretty plain. It's pretty undignified. It's pretty unrefined. All I wanted to talk about was Jesus. Do you know Paul wasn't the only one in his day who was criticized for the way he preached? I imagine the people in Paul's day said, you know, Paul, I, your message is solid. I mean, you're preaching the gospel. We, we get it. It's biblical or, you know, we understand it comes from God, but it doesn't wow us. You know, it's not very entertaining. It's not keeping us on the edge of our seat. Do you know they said that about other people when they preach too? Your, your preaching is, is solid biblically, but it's plain, it's unrefined, it has no posh, it has no style, it, you know, it doesn't wow anybody when they preach. Do you know they said that about two preachers, one in the 19th century and one in the 20th century? The first one they said that his preaching was so plain and ordinary was a man named Dwight L. Moody. And Dwight L. Moody ended up being the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. 
There was a lady who came up to him and, and said, I listened to your, your message, Mr. Moody, and I, I detected at least 44 grammatical errors. <laughs> now that's, you know, somehow I'm just going to say, I don't think she had the spirit of Christ when she was listening to him. She was looking for errors in the way he communicated, in the way he crafted his words together. Instead of, was he preaching the good news message of Jesus? Was he lifting up Christ and him crucified? The other uh, preacher that started out that way that you're going to see in a movie coming up called Unbroken 2, we just saw a preview for that at the movie theater, uh, which I love because the story of Louis Zamperini becoming a Christian in 1949 in a tent meeting in Los Angeles with a, with a young 30-something preacher named Billy Graham that's how Louis Zamperini came to the Lord, and that was after the terrible ordeal that he, that he had spending time in that Japanese prison during World War II. Pretty plain, pretty un unrefined. That's the way they first described Billy Graham when he started out preaching too. So, hey, Paul, you're in good company. There's been plenty of other preachers that have not been called very refined and dignified. Uh, for the Corinthians, I think they were listening to these other preachers, especially after Paul left. And they said, you know, there's Apollos. Wow, he's so eloquent. He's so gifted. He's so intellectual. Apollos could really ignite and ignite a crowd with his silver-tongued messages. And all this had influenced the Corinthians. So, they're, you know, they say, here's Paul's style. So, in other words, were the Corinthians, were they focusing on the message or were they focusing on the speaker's style? And I think the problem was they were focusing on the style when they should have been listening to the words. What is he trying to say? What is the message itself? Not the way he's delivering it. So they loved the way Apollos delivered it. They didn't like the way Paul delivered it. And so they were judging Paul based on that. You know, Paul, he preached teach all right, but it's not compelling. It's not entertaining or, or it, it doesn't wow us like Apollos or Cephas does. And here's Paul. However inferior Paul may have felt in terms of his speaking ability, he just kept trusting that God the Holy Spirit says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. Paul said, I'm going to trust in the power of gospel. He said, when he preaches Christ and he lifts Jesus up, Jesus said all the world would be, would be attracted to the message of the gospel if he kept lifting up Jesus. So Paul says, I'm just going to keep on preaching the gospel and trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to use this message to bring about the conviction and to bring the transformation in the hearer. Because faith comes by hearing and not just hearing anything. Faith comes by hearing the words of Christ, according to Romans chapter 10. So now I want to switch gears because Paul says, I was focusing on myself and the way that I came to you and what I was preaching and my feelings inside when I was delivering the message, I just had to say, it's not about you, Paul. It's about lifting up Jesus. And that's for anybody, for any of you teachers, anybody leading a Bible study, anybody communicating the good news message one-on-one -on -one is say, says, I say, let me get out of the way. It's not about that, how eloquent I can share it. It's about the message of the cross. There's where the power of God is because Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let the power of the gospel go forth in that way when you share and just let his words do the conviction, do the convicting. So now Paul's going to shift gears and he's going to say, okay, enough talk about me and the way I delivered it. Let's talk about you and the way you received it. Because what I have to share to you, it comes from God. It comes from the spirit of God. It's not human wisdom. 
I'm an apostle, and that means that Paul was designated and appointed by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus said, you are going to be my witness. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And Paul became the communicator of the gospel to the non-Jewish world in the first century. Paul's talking about himself and he says, uh, or he's talking about the listener because he's turning the focus on the listener now. Here's the question. How is the listener going to understand all this revelation from God? If the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, how is the listener even going to be able to understand? And Jesus has an answer for that because Jesus in the upper room told his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to do an amazing work that when you as a human being communicate the good news message, the Holy Spirit is going to be right there in power to bring uh, about the conviction and the harvest that God is looking for. Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The helper will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So there's another thing you can rely on when you're sharing the gospel is that all the things you've ever studied, all the, God, all the Bible memory verses that you used to know, and now you can't seem to call to mind at the, at the uh, drop of a hat, God has the ability to bring that memory to you in the time that you need it. He will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He will guide you into all the truth. We can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit when we go out and share the gospel message. So now Paul, uh, he's shifting gears to the listeners, and he's saying, thank God for the speaker. We don't have to rely solely on our own ability. We don't have to rely solely on our own intellect. Did I say it the right way? Did I present it in the right order? Did I say every verse that needed to be shared? Did I ask the person to respond? I mean, you know, you go through the checklist sometimes. Did I do what God wanted me to do? Just trust in God because his spirit is at work in the other person's life. He says this in verse 12. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. So now Paul says, okay, here's the message. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. So Paul says, I'm coming to you when I give you the gospel, when I'm preaching and teaching to you, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. The words that I say, they're not just my own words. These are the words that are empowered by God's spirit because his ways are higher than our ways. When he speaks, it, he says that his word is like water coming down from the earth. It's going to have an effect in the life of the listener. spirit Actual realities with spirit-taught words. This is what we speak in words taught by the spirit. You have the spoken word, which is Paul's preaching. You have the written word, which now we have in the form of the New Testament. We have the ability to understand the very revelation from God because God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Let me say this according to words taught by the spirit. They were the gospels. They were first spoken by Jesus and then repeated by the apostles, Peter writes down this divine inspiration this way. Now, in other words, how do we know 
that what we are reading is really from God? How do we know that the written revelation that we call the New Testament is really from God and approved by God and empowered and anointed by the Spirit of God? Peter says this in his letter. He says, for prophecy, or in other words, speaking the words of God, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There is a a dual process at work when somebody is, is sharing the gospel. There's a dual process at work when you are reading the Bible. When you are reading the Bible, your spirit is trying to understand the revelation from God. God's spirit is in the word revealing God's truth to you as you read it, as you try to understand it, as you pray it through and try to live it out and then pass it on to other people. It says when the first people wrote the Bible, it says they were speaking as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that they were in a trance. Doesn't mean that they were like, you know, like God, God just take over my body and it's like whatever they wrote down and then they wake up from their trance and hey, look at this, there's a letter. You know, that wasn't the process of how it worked. But what it was, was when an apostle sat down to write one of these letters, what he wrote, the words that he wrote saying, I want to convey this kind of message. I want to, I want to deliver these words and this, these ideas to, to God's people living in this area. When he wrote down that message and the Spirit of God was there, the Spirit of God was guiding that prophet, guiding that apostle to where what he wrote down was the revelation from God through the human personality. It's the, it's the way that God even works today, right? Because God... When he, when he created the Bible, it was a divine human combination, God's spirit at work with the human author. When we share the gospel, there is God's spirit at work through a human voice. When you're trying to understand God's revelation from you, to you, saying, I'm not, get rid of the eight ball. God, I want to know from you and your word what, you're, what you want to say to me. When you're reading that, God's spirit is at work, active through the word to give you revelation and understanding. Now, question, why is it? Because we know that this is true in our lives. Why is it that when the same gospel message is shared, that some people get it and some people don't? And I would even venture to say in this, in this room, there are people that are tracking with me. There are people that are listening and saying, okay, I understand, I get it. And there are people that are either saying, what's he talking about? Or I've already tuned out and I'm on to something else and I'm just sitting here until the, the service gets over. Why is it that in the same room conveying the same message, some people get it and some people don't? And I, and I submit to you, it has more to do with you than it has to do with me. What does it have to do? Well, because, and the reason I say that is because at the last part of chapter 2 of, second, of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about three kinds of people. And he talks about three different reactions to the same gospel message. Three different ways that people either value or don't value. That people either understand or do not understand God's revelation to us. So it says here, uh, this is what we speak in words taught by the Spirit. So God is at work. God is at work in my life. He's at work in the conveying of this message. God's spirit is at work in your heart trying to bring you understanding to the revelation. But the, the real deciding factor when it comes down to it is where are you? Where are you in your heart? How is it your attitude? 
You know, are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you ready to receive it gladly? Are you bored with it? Are you rejecting it? Do you have an attitude? I, I know better. I know better than this guy. I know better than this church. I, I got my own way of doing things, and I don't need anybody else telling me what to do. All different kinds of attitude sitting here listening to the same message. And Paul says it has as much to do with you as it does with me. Uh, I'm going to show you three graphics. And the three graphics represent three different kinds of lives. Keep that graphic right up there because this graphic is in 1 Corinthians 2.14. It's talking about the man without the spirit. Now, the circle with the chair in it and the person sitting on the chair, that represents an individual's life. What you see over there in the blue circle is the cross. That represents Jesus. So you have a person, an individual's life, and then you have Jesus. Notice where Jesus is in this graphic because it says the man without the spirit. In fact, it says, it says the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Doesn't accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're only understood through the spirit. So why is that man without the spirit? That man is without the spirit because guess who is in the chair? Guess who is on the throne of that person's life? Is it Jesus? Has that person made Jesus Christ their Lord, the, the leader of their life? Have they submitted their will to, to God and to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. You show me the way to live and I'm going to live the way you want me to live. I'm submitting myself to you. Has that person made that transformation, has made that decision to cross the line of faith? No. And that's why he's called the man without the spirit. So you have, the, you have the first category, the first graphic is the man without the spirit. Let's go on to the next graphic. The worldly Christian. This, is a, this comes from the beginning of chapter 3. This comes from the part where uh, Paul says, uh, brothers and sisters, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you. And, and by the way, I do like the fact that Paul calls them brothers and sisters. Okay, you're still in the family of God, but there's problems here. You know, you're okay because you've, you've embraced the Christian faith. You've begun to follow Jesus, but you haven't taken a very important step yet. And so he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. And he says, indeed, you're still worldly for why, how do you know if they're still worldly or how do you know if they're spiritual? It says there's still jealousy and quarreling among you. And if there's jealousy and quarreling among you, that causes division, not unity. And that means they're acting worldly like mere men instead of people who are governed by the Spirit of God. So it's interesting. This is what we call a carnal or a worldly Christian. A person who names the name of Jesus, but has still not submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus. You know, the simplest way I can say it is, well, you want Jesus as your savior, but you don't necessarily want Jesus as your Lord. And so that person is still governed by themselves. Do you see where this is? So now the difference is, you remember in the graphic with the man without the spirit, where was Jesus? He was outside the circle. The person had never even embraced Christ. Now the person embraces Christ, but is Jesus sitting in the chair? Is Jesus on the throne of this person's life? And the answer is no. 
It's like, I, Jesus, I'm glad to have you in my life. I'm glad to have you like a little rabbit's foot when I need you, when I need some direction, when I need some blessing, when I need you to get me out of a jam. Jesus, I'm going to call on you. But when it really comes to governing my decisions of saying, I will follow you, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? What would he value? I want to act like that. That person is not yet to the point of making Jesus the Lord and the master of their life. And so that's, that's a second person that you do not want to be. You do not want to be the person without Christ. You do not want to be the person who is not directed by Christ. Notice that in both graphics, one is, a, one is a Christian and one is not, but in both of the graphics, Jesus is not on the throne. The self uh, is still governing that person's life. Now, let's go to the good graphic. I showed you the two bad ones. Let's go to number three. This is the one you want to be on. This is the one who say, that's me. You want, I, I hope you want to say that. <laughs> this is me because you want to be this person. This is the spirit-led person. Jesus is on the throne. Notice where the self is. He said, gee, I got to get out of the way. If I govern my life, I'm just going to mess it up. I'm just going to do things that, that I only want to do to please me, myself, and I. And that's not living the Christian life. That's not glorifying God. Like Levi said in the communion meditation, that's not going to lead you to a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Where, does, where do you get those kind of outcomes and fruits in your life? You get those when you have your life in the proper order. When you have actually said, Jesus, you're going to be the one to run the show. I'm giving, the, I'm giving you the steering wheel of my life. You drive my car, and I'm going to get out. Don't do the old God is my co-pilot. You know, I'm in the steering wheel, but hey, I got Jesus along with me. That goes back to the other graphic where, yeah, Jesus is in your life, but he's not governing your life. You want this graphic representing your life. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, he says. The fear, this is the person, the spiritual man, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, where you fear God. Solid food, now talking about a mature Christian here. How do you know, what's the difference between a mature Christian and an immature Christian? It says the mature Christian, it says, has eats solid food, not just milk, because milk is for, just for infants, Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, notice that word, constant use, you know, you're not in church once in a long while. You're not reading your Bible only when you get into trouble. You're not listening to Christian teaching or listening to Christian music uh, only every other weekend. You know, this has to be something where it is a discipline. It's an everyday part of your life. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves. There's where the discipline comes in, where if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will practice discipline. And by constant use, you are training yourself to be able to, to distinguish good from evil. How do you know what's a godly decision? How do you know which way to go in your life? Who by constant use have trained themselves to be able to distinguish, to discern between what is good and what is evil. Does this square up with what the Bible says? I don't know. What does the Bible say about it, right? If you don't know what the Bible says about it, that's your next step. Go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says about this particular topic. Because then, by constant use and disciplining yourself in the Word of God daily, you can find out if that's really from God or if that's really a message coming from somewhere else. You can have the ability to distinguish good from evil. Go back to those three graphics. The, the life 
that the, the first one on the top left there, Jesus is not even in your life. That is just the, the person without the Spirit of God. One of the translations calls him the natural man. The natural man, not the spiritual man. The person who says, uh, Jesus, I, I, I'm not willing to humble myself and realize that I can't save myself. I'm not ready to embrace you and follow you. That's the graphic on the left. That's a person who's not even in the kingdom of God. And then on the top right, you have the person represented like, yeah, I, I said yes to Jesus. I followed him. I was baptized as a teenager. But somewhere along the way, Jesus is no longer governing your life. He's no longer in the driver's seat. He's no longer on the throne of your life. And if that's where you are, today's a great day to turn graphic number two for you into graphic number three. Because there is a way to turn around. There's a way to fix this problem and make sure that your life is governed by the graphic right there in the middle where you see the self has gotten off the throne and says, I don't have to boss my, I don't have to be the boss of everything now. I'm going to have Jesus govern my life. I'm going to follow his leading and his teaching. Is this, Lord Jesus, is this what you want me to do? Fine, I'll do it. Is this what you want me to say? Fine. Is this where you want me to go? Fine, I'll go. And when that is happening, there's where the life of joy and blessing and righteousness, it's all coming from that. Uh, here's some spiritual traits which result from trusting God and growing in Christian maturity. In other words, how do you know? How do you know if you're really being governed by God? A spirit-led person. We'll just go down them one at a time. The first one is... <laughs> the first one is this person. A spirit-led person is Christ-centered. Christ-centered. As I said, Jesus is on the throne of your life. The second uh, sign of a spirit-led person is they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're a person who introduces others to Christ. They're the person that has an effective prayer life. One of the ways you can say is, hey, um, am I walking in the Spirit? Do I, am I a mature Christ follower? One of the, the, the temperature gauges or the gauges on your dashboard to check yourself out on that is to say, am I praying effectively? Uh, do I have an effective prayer life? Because the Bible says in James chapter 5 that the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. In other words, if you're really following Jesus and you're praying to God and you're praying in accordance with God's will in the Spirit of God, some great things are going to happen. Powerful things are going to happen because of this person's prayer life. Ask yourself, does anybody ever ask me to pray for them? That might be an indicator of whether or not you have a, a powerful prayer life or not. If people are coming up to you all the time and asking you to pray for them, it's a good sign. A person who understands God's word, a person who trusts and obeys God, a person who is humble. Here's another sign of a spirit-led person. A person is humble, not tooting your own horn. Back to chapter one, let him who boasts, not boast about yourself. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Be bragging about Jesus. Get yourself off the throne. Get yourself off center stage, wherever the spotlight is. If your life represents a platform with a stage and a spotlight, make sure that Jesus is in the spotlight and that you are like out of the spotlight because the focus really ought to be on him more than it ought to be on you. And, then, and because of that, that's when you're going to experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we were talking about. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the final question I have for you guys. When in your spiritual journey, because Paul says at the end of this chapter 
You know, the spiritual man is able to judge all things. The spiritual man is able to tell what God's will is and understand it and apply it to his or her life. The spiritual person has that ability because Jesus is on the throne of their life. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, right? So that person is being led by God and that person has the mind of Christ. That's where Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. So what I, what I wanna say is if, if you are ready to make that choice, if you're ready to try to answer this question, when in your spiritual journey did, quote, the mind of Christ start to make a difference in, in your life? When did the, quote, the mind of Christ start to, to affect your values, your opinions, your, the way you see the world, the way you see other people? When did the mind of Christ start to bring in that transformation in your values and your choices and your decisions? where you started to value the things that God values, where you started to love and appreciate uh, other people the way that God loves them, where you start, started to understand just what an amazing Savior that we have in Jesus, where you started to see abuse and injustice and pain in this world is something that is not in the will of God for this world. That's something that, that we need to try to, where there is injustice, we need to try to replace injustice with justice. Where we need to try to stop abuse from happening. Stop people from hurting other people. Where, when you start caring about other people that you don't even know, but you see them as victims of this abuse or this exploitation or, or the sin that's in this world, and you said, I, got, I can't just sit here. I have to do something about that. That's a good sign when you know you're being empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Three kinds of people in those graphics. Three kinds of people. Which one are you? Which one are you? Be honest with yourself. We're supposed to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves with the Spirit of God and say, God, which, where, which one do you see me as? Lord, because I want, to be, I want to be that graphic that's in the middle. I want to be that one where Jesus is on the throne of my life. I want, to be the I want to have the blessed life of God. So God, help me to get my priorities right. There's a prayer that we can pray together. It's a prayer that we pray in faith. It's a prayer that we ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. It's a prayer where we actually commit ourselves to try to become the people in the middle graphic where Jesus is front and center in our lives and not on the periphery. If you're ready to pray that prayer, uh, I have it written. I actually wrote it up on a graphic. And if we can pull it up, I, we can pray that prayer together. God wants us filled with his Holy Spirit by faith. Let's join together and pray this prayer in faith. There it is. In fact, we can read this. You know, by the way, some people say, well, how am I going to read that prayer and pray at the same time. I mean, don't you have to close your eyes to pray? <laughs> Actually, you can leave your eyes open and still be praying. Have you never been driving and prayed? <laughs> Please, I hope you're not closing your eyes like, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And please heal me from my, my uh, terrible injuries as a result of leaving my eyes closed when I prayed while I was driving. Yeah. So we can pray this uh, awake together. It says, dear Father, Let's pray this together. If you believe this and you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you want Jesus front and center of your life. Dear Father, I need you. I acknowledge that I have been directing my own life 
and that as a result, I have sinned against you. I thank you that you have forgiven my sins through Christ's death on the cross for me. I now invite Christ to again take his place on the throne of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit as you commanded me to be filled and as you promised in your word that you would do if I asked in faith. I now thank you for directing my life and for filling me with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, and you didn't just say the words, but if you meant that, God always honors his word. He's always faithful. We could be faithless sometimes, but God is always faithful. He answered that prayer. If you're sincere, then Jesus, we go back to that graphic, and guess what? Guess what? It's not, it's not the graphic on the left. It's not the graphic on the right. This is now the good news for you that Jesus, you are now where God wants you to be. You are now going to be led by the Spirit. And the idea now is to say from this day forward, Jesus, I want to keep you front and center, keep you on the throne of my life, be filled by the Spirit so that I, like Paul says, I can have the mind of Christ and I can start living the way that you want me to live every single day. It's going to result in joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. It's a life of blessing. And I pray that for every one of us. Amen.